0: Hello, everyone. Sam Willis here. Now, before we begin, I wanted to make a little announcement. I'm delighted to tell you all that I've teamed up with the excellent Bike Odyssey, a company with history and travel deep in its heart. They offer exceptional biking adventures. Bike Odyssey was set up by the historian, TV presenter and friend of mine, Sam Wood, who made the BBC documentary On Hannibal's Trail, and he subsequently dedicated his life to cycling in the footsteps of great historical figures. This autumn, I'll be joining their Venetian tour traveling in the footsteps of marco polo come along and see for yourself why the adriatic sea is the most scenic coastline in the world along the way i'll be sharing stories from my life of travel adventure and research as well as exploring the history all around us it'll be a chance not just to immerse yourself in some of the world's most fascinating history but to change the way that you think about the past now if you want to find out more just head over to bike Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything has its own history. Like diligence, homes or shivering. Or like eating, greeting and fleeting. Mm.
1: Something is fleeting. Or warts, quarts and ports. And with ports, I'm thinking about ports in which you sail into, but also... Uh, rare ports that you drink. Yes. I'm thinking that. Both very good. Yes, I think so too. We'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of fattening is the history of fattening is in fact all about dormice, darkness, want, delicacies and political satire? Or that the history of tattoos... Is about domination, property, slavery, barbarians, superiority, oh, 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 and painfulness. Oh, it is. They <laughs> don't have a tattoo, do you? No,
0: no, yet, yet. We no. Get Histories of the unexpected. <laughs> <Tattoos>. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Uh, the man sitting opposite me—he's the Caesar of the historical seasons. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University, it's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam, and jinx, because (laughs) the person sitting opposite (laughs) me
1: is the Julius Caesar of imperial history. Uh We'll have a sort of civil war here. It is the wonderful, uh, famous historical adventurer, Mr
0: History himself, Dr Sam Willis. Thank you, James. Has anyone guessed it? This is where you will nod when you're on your bike. Yes, no, so I have guessed it. Because we are going to be doing the Romans. Indeed we are. Uh, now, what have we been doing with the Romans, oh, Sam? Oh, so exciting. What do we know about the Romans? We cleverly and cunningly decided to write a little book on the history of the Romans, where we take a topic like the Romans and we break it down into lots of unexpected subjects. So before we go into those, why don't we just think a little bit about the challenges of writing a Romans book and what we think are traditional, normal ways of thinking about the Romans. The starting point for us was realising and working with the fact that the term Romans is um, a slippery, it's a slippery bugger, isn't it? Yes. Um, It can be used to describe an enormous number of people who lived in an enormous... Different number of locations at different times under different laws and with different beliefs. I think the thing is, as a scholarly interloper
1: into a new topic like Romans or Vikings or World War Two, when you you haven't been trained in that area, you want to be you want to get a, a grip on it, don't you? Yeah. You want to, you know, and so with this. As with our books on Vikings and our books on World War II, our books on the Tudors, I'm a Tudor professor, um, we wanted to really get to grips with what the landscape was like in terms of definitions, in terms of the source materials. And one of the most... It, one of the most difficult things was actually the term Roman itself. It's very
0: challenging. Yes. Now, there are other kind of big themes that we, we saw. We knew it was going to be very much about rises and falls. It would be about cities. We could do a certain archaeological take on things. We could look at women. We could look at men. We could look at kids. And what we wanted to do was, was embrace all of this, but also look at entirely unusual approaches. Yes. Um. What did you think of the evidence, the source material you had to work with? Did
1: Brilliant. you enjoy it? Brilliant. I loved it. Um, I found it really challenging and new. Um, I had no, I had taught uh, the sort of latter part of the Roman Empire before, so I knew some of that. Um, as a as a Renaissance scholar, a lot of the classical texts are familiar to me. Um, but you've got different, different categories of... Source material. So you've got the written evidence that survives from the time. Um, We've got early letters. You've then got the um, printed materials that survive the very I mean, they're printed now, but the all of the writings. So you've got your sort of classical authors. Um, And you've got histories and you've got plays and you've got political treatises from all the sort of famous writers from Cicero onwards that we're all very familiar with. Uh, You've got collections of letters. Then you've got the archaeological record, Mm -hmm. uh, which is extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily varied. And along that, you've got the, the architectural record. You just wander around somewhere like the Forum in Rome And it's like wandering around a sort of, you know, outdoor museum of antiquity. We've also got uh, a lot of paintings that survive. Um, You've got places like Pompeii. You know, which is a sort of an intact city, um, and there's been an enormous amount of research that's done on that in 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 the UK. You've got places like Vindolanda uh, in the north, yes, um, which are Hadrian's Wall. Hadrian's Wall. Um, So
0: that's uh, uh, for those who don't know, it's had some particularly unusual environmental conditions, which meant that lots of items which had been thrown into the ditch surrounding yes. the fort have been preserved in an immaculate condition, particularly like shoes. Their shoes yeah. Yes, um, so it, um,
1: and I suppose the challenge is, you know, often we are as historians we're used to working with a particular category of written document, yeah. and fewer of those kinds of documents survive for earlier periods, ancient periods in history, and so you're having to think much more cleverly and much more imaginatively about the range of materials that you're that you're working with and that is an absolute gift for histories of the unexpected because you make these huge sort of leaps um, so that, that was a, that was a challenge. It was it was having to get to work, having to become familiar with different types of source materials, rather like the when we worked on the Vikings and sort of mould them all together.
0: Yes, and make them work for yes. you. I think the Roman period it's marked, I think, by one really interesting fact. One is that there is an enormous variety of material. Yes. So particularly if you just think about written material, you've got histories, essays, poems, plays, manuals, all sorts of different type of things. But relatively speaking, for the amount of time that we're talking about, the several centuries in which the Roman Empire was a thing, yes. and also for the amount of locations in which the Roman Empire was a thing, it's actually not that much material. No. So you do have a lot of variety, but at the same time, you don't have that much quantity however there is easily enough for historians working on the roman empire to come up with some wonderful new ways of thinking about the past yes and that's what i've found so um yes rewarding about writing about it is just seeing how how brilliant people are being yeah when they're looking at the same documents which have been looked over by a hundred years worth of professional historians and they go well actually i think it's about this i think it's about something completely different yes and um that really ticks our boxes isn 't it?
1: I mean the other thing is just is d- just defining what Roman was, and I think that was something that was extraordinary because you 're you're, you're not we 're not just talking about the Roman Empire but we 're talking about Rome across the centuries, so we 're talking about the birth of Rome in eighth century. Uh, BCE, you're then talking about the the time of kings when Rome is ruled by a series of kings from 753 BC till 509 BC, then the period of the Republic yeah. that comes after that, that then, that then moves into the Roman Empire, which is a period roughly 27 BCE to uh, 285 CE, and then you've got the splitting of the Roman Empire between East and West. Um, and so, and you can see the Roman Empire in some ways going until four seven six, uh, when Germanic warrior tribes sort of overthrew um, the last Roman emperor. But then it can it continues in the east until the Ottomans sack Constantinople in fourteen fifty three. We don't go quite that far, but it, it but Rome across time means very different things. And so at, at its at its height. You know, you're thinking about an area that that stretches as far north as, you know, the top of England through to modern day Iraq and the Persian Gulf into Africa and Egypt. And you're looking at a territory that is not only enormous, but has something like 50 million people living within it. And therefore, one of the difficult things is to think about experience of Rome, what it meant to be Roman and there are certain kind of continuities that people would have experienced in terms of Roman culture, Roman laws, Roman government, that sort of thing, coinage. Um, but there are also things that, you know, across a, an enormous geographical reach like that, that people are fundamentally different. Somebody, yeah. somebody living in London you know, is probably having a very different, or outside of London, is living a very different sort of life than somebody living in Rome.
0: Having done all this now, is there a particular area of Roman history that you think you would like to do if you suddenly stopped what you did now and you said, I'm not going to be a Tudor historian, I'm going to be a Roman historian, what would you write about? I'd probably write about gender,
1: women. I think that's a really interesting area. Um, but it, I think the thing that interests me more than anything is the material culture of Rome, and I think that that's something that allows you, you know, to be to be really, really creative. I think there's so much. I I was actually really impressed with the state of. Uh, ancient studies that sounds like a very grand statement, but it it is incredibly creative because you kind of think you know this sort of cl- classical studies has basically been around for centuries
0: but longer than any longer uh, other than any history,
1: any actually. other sort of form of of study, and yet people are still breathing fresh new light into it. And we're not just talking about a sort of, you know, rethinking of the Roman army or whatever, but, you know, some of the clever stuff that I was reading about posture or walking or literacy and inkwells. And, you know, there's some really great new research out there well, that, the, I, that I really enjoyed.
0: Yeah, and it's just, it's about having new eyes, isn't it? The posture one, yes. we'll come talk about that in a minute. But the principle, I think, is here that someone's looked at a Roman wall painting and before they'd have gone... This This is a really interesting example of Romans painting on walls, essentially. But now someone said, well, have a look at it. And what is the child doing perched on the end of that little bench? Yes. And why are they sitting like that? Because we now know that there is a history of sitting. We know there is a history of hunching. We know there is a history of um, waiting.
1: I think one of the big questions that I have about... Ancient Rome, and this came to me listening to Mary Beard, the wonderful Mary Beard, on Radio Four the other day. She's giving a series of lectures at Cambridge uh, about uh, Roman history, and she was talking about the dilemma that we have: that we look in one in one way, Rome feels like a very civilized, very modern society, and we think about the technological advances, and yet at the other extreme it feels very very different from the kind of world we live in today and you think about gladiatorial combat and the spectacle of the amphitheater and the gladiator um battle and people watching gladiators fight to the death and is that something that is so very new is that something that you know that is um you know, is it something that we would see in society today? Is it so different from from what we're seeing today? And, and the example that she gave was people on their smartphones today looking at awful atrocities around the world and that, in fact, the Roman world and our own modern world are not that far apart.
0: And I think being able to identify with what's going on Today, but through the lens of something that was so long ago, is part of the charm of it isn 't it yes. um, here 's a sentence that you wrote, James Enough survives in the sources for us to see that it was both funny and cruel, violent and peaceful, that people experienced pleasure and pain, want and excess, justice and injustice, rules and judgment that the Romans were moral and immoral that it was a period that saw both rapid change and decades of stasis it 's a very human period because I think the Romans had such a a good eye for for how they behaved and how they thought.
1: Yes, it's an incredibly sort of hierarchical society um, and with all sorts of rules and protocols about how you behave according to, you know, what position you find yourself in in society
0: which are not fixed which is what I really liked about yes. it so you have w- some rule created by some person at some point which is completely fixed yes. and it's very very rigid and then someone else comes along and says well I think that's a ridiculous idea and then they do something else but it's all under the Roman you know their flexibility their ability to change their their desire to do things differently from before I I admire and like
1: well I'm wondering why why we get this sense of Rome being so hierarchical and whether it is because of the nature of the sources that survive. That's a good point. So whether it is because we have a lot of manuals that are all about how to do things.
0: I love the manuals in Rome. They're great,
1: but it, what it does is it gives you a particular sort of slant on things. Whereas then if you, you, know, if you look at graffiti on a brothel wall, yeah. you know, people are acting in a very different very very different way
0: but so there is a real light and shade with what we know about Rome uh, for example there are wonderful manuals on how to build and run aqueducts which yes. I love so it's not just the physical properties of how you build an aqueduct and how you make the water run from A to B across x hundred miles through tunnels and you get the angle just right but it's also the political things of actually accessing that water so that's what we don't have for the Viking period Yep. Um, what you should do listeners, our lovely listeners, listen to this and then listen to the podcast on the Vikings because the two different types of sources are fundamentally different and that allows us to uh, write about the periods in different ways as well but what we have here are these, we we know how a lot of things work but at the same time we know how a lot of things didn't didn't work, there there are gaps there aren't there is what I'm trying yes. to say oh, totally, yeah. totally, so um, wrapping this all up you know, if you
1: think about the traditional histories of the Romans, which, you know, follow through wars and emperors and, you know, the Republic moving into the, um, into the empire, that's not what we're doing with this. There is an introduction at the beginning that gives you a very simple potted history of the romans so if if you've never encountered the romans before we give you those kind of um you know safety handles
0: safety handles you to to sort of get (laughs) to immerse yourself in the chaos of our book so this is these are the chapters we have done for romans we do the history of walls tattoos collecting art Posture Fattening Taming Recycling Walking Poison The Kiss Solar Power Fish Benches Weaving Taming Shopping Wicked Stepmothers Feet Inkwells Demonic Possession And finally the number seven. What was your favourite chapter? Or uh, benches. Benches. Uh, well there are lots of different aspects of lots of different chapters. I don't think I have a favourite chapter. I've got some favourite examples I think.
1: I, I liked walking and posture and I'm not going to talk about those.
0: Are you not? No. No. No, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about walls, oh, walls and poison. Okay, just let's and inkwell. If you're not going to talk about walking, let's just give you a clue. There are some wonderful subtitles here. The, my favourite one is not walking. So James did the history of not walking in Rome.
1: <laughs> but that's about status. So it's about being carried around. How to walk like a woman? Exactly. There, there are there are manuals about how to walk like a like a woman. How to walk like a man. Yeah. And if you're a man who walks like a woman, there are you know, questions about your sexuality.
0: Yeah, and uh, walking, walking with friends that I really like. Yes. There's this just little thing here with... Uh, so I know we're not talking about walking, but I just wanted to... But know, you're talking about I, walking. I, I'm talking about walking. Um, this lovely letter from Cicero, which I, which you found, to his, to his friend Atticus. And so then I wait for you. I miss your company. I even demand your return, for there are many things that are worrying and distressing to me. And if I only had your ear, I feel I could pour them all out in one walk's conversation.
1: Yeah. So it's about it's about what. So walking is about friendship. It's it's about friendship and that sort of discussion, intellectual discussion. And the two go hand in hand. Uh, the walk is rather like a letter. Yes, because it's an it's an opportunity to converse between two people. So I see the walk as a canvas, so um, an, an, an open an open page that is to be written upon. So we're not talking about walking, the world. we? We're not talking about walking, but, that but we've done, we have done walking. I wanted to talk about walls. OK, go for it. Walls was absolutely fascinating, and I have to thank my wife uh, for setting me off uh, on this, because I said I wanted to do something on walls, and she said, ah, I've got an idea for you. Pyramus and Thisbe. Um, and in um, Midsummer Night's Dream, there is a play within a play... And the Roman play within that is basically about these two lovers, and we see about this in the ancient world in Ovid. So it's these two lovers who are separated by a wall, and yet it's the narrowness of the wall that then allows them to communicate to each other, to speak to each other, their parents don't want them to meet up. Um, they start talking through this wall. They then eventually meet up and both commit suicide. So it's terrible. They terrible push things thing. through, to, through the walls to each other. They, no, they talk to each other oh, through, okay, through right. the wall. Um, but the idea is about walls as a form of subversion, because we're quite often used to thinking about walls in the Roman world as authoritarian structures. Yes. That. You know, you think about the Antonine Wall, you think about Hadrian's Wall, you think about keeping people out, you think about them as uh, sort of formal things that that go around cities and are about defence and order. But then if you think about how people actually, as individuals, engage with walls and subvert walls and conscript that space, rather like you might see that when you're walking down around a, a modern city... And you think about graffiti, you think about people meeting in shade. You think about shaded areas for people to lurk and you know and jump out on people, so sites of crime. You think about the way in which prostitutes might you know be in lurk in particular areas or particular shadows. And so walls become these sort of sites not just of authoritarian rule, but also as areas that you can conscript. So you can you can basically use them in a way that you want. And so this idea of Pyramus and Thisbe was a way, was a kind of motif for like getting into this kind of challenge, the way in which people use walls in subversive ways. And we talked in the past about graffiti, but certainly in ancient Rome, there's graffiti all over the place. Brilliant graffiti in Pompeii. Um, there's a brothel uh, in Pompeii that they have excavated, and it has all sorts of graffiti on it for from men who are expressing their sexual prowess on the walls, prostitutes who presumably have put prices on the walls. Um, there's a wonderful house of Maius Castricius, uh, which is a four-storied house in Pompeii that looks out over the Bay of Naples. and you've got over eighty examples of graffiti mm-hmm. on the wall there. You've got uh, re- reply and and repost uh, poems. you've got drawings that are that are sort of erotic. And when so you say the reply
0: and repost people having conversations. people having
1: else. conversations. so it's it's not just we think about graffiti as a form. it's not just people sort of writing something for others to read. It's people writing it, and then somebody reads it and responds to it. Yeah. Um, which, which is so you get you get there the the uh, sort of sense of conversation on the walls. So graffiti on walls becomes something that's incredibly organic. Very, yeah. very, very, very clever.
0: I love the bit about the people lurking in the shadows of the walls. Yes. as well. Yes, which really kind of brings it home. So you think of the walls as being structured, rigid, military, authoritarian things, and actually, by their very presence, you're creating areas for people to break laws, to people to yes. be doing secret stuff.
1: Yes, I mean it's very, it's very. I mean, you could look at this history of walls across time, and you could probably see very similar activities. If you look at the history of 17th century York, you look at the way in which people interact with the walls of York. I think you'd see very similar patterns. And so, I mean, that's a really interesting thing about how people's interaction with architecture is sort of quite continuous over time. But that's walls for you. Walls are all about subversion.
0: Amazing. It's quite good, huh? I um, had a real moment when I was just doing some reading. I was doing some sort of general reading around Roman topics Hmm. um, to try and find a way in that would, A, appeal to me, and B, there'd be enough information to actually write something about. Yes. Um, and I w- was reading an excavation report of Pompeii, and I came across the uh, fascinating fact that they found 100 benches in Pompeii. 100 benches? Which I loved. People and did I a thought, lot of sitting. Hello, I can do something with this. There's some really interesting stuff going on on in Pompeii. and um, You always challenge yourself yeah. to write things that seemed impossible. It did, but um, there's some scholarship written on the benches of Pompeii. So I followed all that up, and that was that was uh, really eye opening. So it turns out there are a hundred benches. They're associated with 69 different properties, hmm. and they're benches which have been built by property owners to provide people who walk past their property or sit out at the front of them to pass the time of day. So you've got this kind of urban phenomenon of Romans providing public resting places. Just, I mean, in a day to day sense but also in a eternal sense so outside the city are these things called scholar tombs and Mm. they are tombs of well-known people but they're benches they are both benches and tombs there are other examples across rome but they're particularly noticeable in um, in pompeii and they're wonderful things they're curved and they're located on slightly raised ground just outside the walls where you can sit Maybe think about the brilliance and the munificence of, of the dead person, um, but also think about the world that's going on in front of you and all the traders and all the soldiers, whatever's happening, the citizens and the children all moving in and out of the city of Pompeii. And I love that. I can really identify with that, sitting in the sun and watching the world go by. So I wrote a chapter about benches and how they are there for public service. So essentially, the people building these benches are providing a public service, somewhere to rest. Um, but at the same time, that then allowed me to write about seating in theatres, um, which is all done on benches, and also seating in government. Yes. So you have the uh, the bench orientation and the way that the benches worked in the Senate, and then you have um, other other examples of. How benches are absolutely fundamental to Roman democracy, and how that then changes subtly during the Empire. So uh, benches was the eye-opening thing, and I'm I, I love that chapter.
1: It was very, it was a very good chapter. I loved tattoos. Yes, I've been wanting to write about tattoos for ages, and the Roman world is full of tattoos. Yeah, in a variety of ways. Um, tattoos was all about imperial domination. Mm-hmm. So the tattoo, and there are all sorts of descriptions about how tattoos were 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 made, uh, which is fascinating. And also the removal of tattoos, you know, and yeah, uh, so they the, sounded painful. knowledge of that knowledge of that incredibly painful. But knowledge of knowledge of of inking and then taking away the ink seems to have been quite widespread. But they. The Romans used them to mark as a form of ownership, so they would mark slaves with it. It was a way of marking criminals as well. Um, it was also a form of punishment. Um, but also, I think people could... Um, it was a way of marking out Roman civilization from the barbarians. So if you have a look at, at accounts of people in, say, ancient... Britons—they were supposed to be covered with woad and, and markings—and they were seen in some ways as sort of barbaric and uncivilised compared to the Romans, who were were unmarked. Yep. And there's a certain degree of stigma for people who find themselves slaves, who find Roman slaves who find themselves freed, still having the mark of slavery on their face. And one of the reasons that people seek to have the tattoo taken off is because they want it and no longer look like a slave. And I think here the form of tattooing is very different in the Roman world from today, where today it is about body art and self-expression, whereas for the Romans it is about ownership and it's about control. So that was a sort of fascinating little foray into the world of tattooing. We should do a, a whole... Podcast on tattoos.
0: We should, we should, we'll come back and do it. I mean, I love the way it just flips and the the reasons for tattooing completely changing. So you can have a tattoo which gives you pride, whether it's woad or whether it's a, one of the snarling tiger, whatever it might be. And then you have one which gives you shame, which is I'm a slave. Yes. Essentially tattooed on. It's similar with, you have the prison of war tattoos from, um, German Auschwitz prisoner of war, yes, war camps. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, well, you know how marking your body can, can be, be read in different ways. We talk about that in our live show, don't we? We do. Yes, With scarification. We do. Yes, we do. I'm brilliant at it. <laughs> you are. You're very lyrical, James. I've got a quote for you. Go on, then. Which is one of my favourite co- quotes i got here. This is about the Emperor Vitellius, who uh, was a overweight emperor. And I wrote a chapter on fattening, fattening Yes, um, which was... A interesting mix between how the Romans loved to fatten up animals, usually small animals, particularly dormice yeah, and it? thrushes. <laughs> yes, um, and I discovered that it's very difficult to fatten a dormouse or a thrush because they have such high heart rates. So oh. if you have an animal with a slow heart rate, it's easy to fatten them. It's obviously to do with burning calories. Now that more I think I about missed it, missed that. Um, Gosh! So it's why it's easy to fatten a pig because they just wallow around and they have a slow yeah. heart rate. Whatever they eat turns into fat. Whereas a thrush. Very, 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 very difficult to fatten. So, and the same with the dormouse. Gosh, so, that is
1: a delicacy, then.
0: So it is because you've proven that you've a kind of you're in control of nature. Yes, this is why the Romans like doing it. And also, you've got this kind of cunning technology, um, which allows you to do it. And you've got you've got systems in place. You've got manuals, all the kind of things like that control. the Rom- that the Romans love. So to you, it is. It's not the fact that it's just fat. It, the fact is, you've fattened something that's difficult to fatten, right? And that proves. Um, dominance control over nature. However, you are not allowed to fatten yourself, which is which is a bit of a problem. So you can admire fat things, but you c- certainly could not be fat yourself. It does slightly change because at one period, you've got quite large emperors, um, and they uh, choose to be depicted as fat on their coins. Very different from like Caesar's early coins, where he's all kind of cheekbones and bones. Anyway, this is about Vitellius, who is a fat man. Yes. And he is mocked politically on the basis that his, his fatness is it, is, it is evidence of his inability to control himself, his inability to control the empire. It's, it's evidence of weakness. Anyway, he, he, he meets a pretty gruesome death. All along the sacred way he was greeted with mockery and abuse, his head held back by the hair, as is common with criminals, and even the point of a sword placed under his chin so that he could not look down but must let his face be seen. Some pelted him with dung and ordure. Others called him incendiary and glutton and some of the mob even taunted him with his bodily defects. He was, in fact, abnormally tall with a face unusually flushed from hard drinking, a huge belly and one thigh crippled from being struck once upon a time by a four-horse chariot when he was in attendance on Gaius as he was driving. At last, on the stairs of Wailing, he was tortured for a long time and then dispatched and dragged off with a hook into the Tiber. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed that. And I enjoyed the the difference between um, fat people and fat animals. Um, anything else you'd like to bring up that you enjoyed? Well, I liked, oh,
1: I liked so much of it. But I, one of the things that really caught my imagination was inkwells. Yes. As a historian, I am fascinated in the idea of literacy. And I've spent a lot of my career looking at literacy and writing systems. And so for me, inkwells were all about power. And if you think about a uh, measurement of literacy in early modern society, so from fifteenth sixteenth century onwards, the universal measurement of literacy is the signature, and you can collect simply hundreds of thousands of signatures and we talked about this when we looked at the signature, and then you can measure you know the percentage of the population that were literate, how it changes over time, you can map it by gender sex um, Uh, and class, you can look at it in different countries, blah, 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 blah. There are very few signatures that survive for the Roman period. And so how do you start looking at literacy? We get a sort of sense, patchy sense of literacy by looking at things like graffiti. That tells us something about ordinary people. But there's a brilliant study by an archaeologist called Helle Eckhart um, that looks at literacy and power and starts using inkwells and what she's done is she's collected about a sample of about 400 brass inkwells as her standard sort of device and looked at where they survive across the Roman Empire and then used this to look at you know geographies of literacy so you know and you, if if you if you look at where They appear in the archaeological evidence. I mean, she obviously hasn't been all over the place to look at it, but what she's looked at is archaeological notes, notes of digs, and looked at the examples of this. And you start looking at it, not just... These survive not just in the places where you'd expect them, within towns where it's associated with merchants and trades and government, not just in military sites, so on Hadrian's Wall and Vindolanda and places like that, but also in, it's found in women's graves. And so you're suddenly able to sort of look at the spread of literacy among particular kinds of women. Now, grave goods are quite difficult to study because effectively what it means is that is how the surviving wished the deceased to be represented. Nonetheless, the fact that the surviving members of the family or whatever chose for inkwells to be deposited in women's graves suggests some kind of connection to literacy. So I just I just found this absolutely fascinating as a resource. How do you take some tiny little pot that's all sorts of varieties has you know, some of them have some of them are larger, some of them are smaller, some of them have twin holes in the top. How do you take that and suddenly talk about literacy? And for me, it also enables you to talk about, you know, about technologies of writing. So in terms of, you know, if you have two um, two joined inkwells, one for black ink, one for red ink, that talks about different systems of writing. If it's a small inkwell that somebody owns, you know, they maybe wrote a little less. If it's a fat inkwell, they wrote more. So you can start thinking about power and government and extension of Roman Empire um, throughout, the, throughout the realm.
0: I'm particularly uh, pleased with our subtitles that we yes. have throughout the book. Um, this is my favourite one. OK. The Threat of Peddlers. The Threat of Peddlers. <laughs> now, remind me, what that that's about shopping, isn't it? It is all about that shopping. Um, and can you explain, Can yeah, we, shall yeah. we explain so that? Hawkers and street sellers were viewed as particularly suspect, especially when they visited the home to sell their wares and doorstepped the occupant without warning. Yes. Which I, I really enjoy this. So many, many ancient authors were particularly worried about shopping and home visits and the sexual threat that the unexpected salesman presented, especially when the women of the household who might be bored with their humdrum life.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. So, From a male point of view as well. Also, when these peddlers turn up, um, there's there's a sort of male disquiet around actually having to put their hands in their pockets to buy women things. Yeah, so it leads to extravagance.
0: There are no women sources talking about the peddlers, but it's all to do with men worried about their wives meeting peddlers yes. and then worried about them spending their money on their wives and the peddlers. Yes. So, yes, um, I thought that was fascinating. And there are some, um, there are some other. I, I like the. Um, uh, the final chapter of wicked stepmothers in Roman history. Um, so think Cinderella, think Snow White, but it's got a very, very long, long and complex and fascinating history, which we explore. And I think, what's the conclusion about their obsession with women with um, wicked stepmothers? I suppose the fact is that it tells us more about the society in which this is all being written about, rather than the wickedness of the the actual women. <laughs> But it's, it's, it's that concern
1: about inheritance. It and is, when, so it's all to do yes, with inheritance. It's all to do with inheritance. But it's also to do with poison, and we've got a chapter on poison. And poison is an absolutely fascinating chapter. Not only do we have all sorts of information about various sort of poisons and hemlock dipped in honey and garlands of flowers, poison flowers dropped in people's drinks. I mean, there's tons and tons of stuff about that. But there's also, it's also connected to um, female power. Poison, so a lot of the, the sort of chief poisoners are women. And poison often is seen as a, as a female weapon. Um, but not only that, but there are a number of um, mass deaths, mass poisonings, and there's a lot of hysteria associated with it, and women get um, often blamed for poisoning.
0: But it always happens. We found out it happens at times of political distress. political
1: crisis and political distress. Crisis. So women, rather like witchcraft, you know, where women become scapegoats uh, during the witch craze. So during periods of of civil unrest and and and, um, and plagues and deaths, women are the ones blamed for the poisoning. So it's fascinating. Um, I loved weaving as well. Well,
0: Weaving was very good.
1: Weaving? Yeah. I loved uh, feet. Yes. Feet was brilliant. Like, how do you find um, how do you find evidence of Roman feet?
0: They trod in tiles. <laughs> and we have we have, you know, actual Roman footprints. Yeah, and that tells us much more than you might suspect. Anyways, yeah. you can follow me on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. and you can follow us at Unexpected Pod. And if you want to find out what we're doing, go on to histories of the We've got a little project for some citizen historians, some student historians are going to help us out to write some little articles. They're going to be online. We've got our live shows coming up. Do please come and see us live if you haven't. Our podcasts and our books have been turned into a live show by um, a good friend of mine, the very well-known playwright, Daniel Jameson. And you can also buy a
1: signed copy of our book if you go to our website. Should you wish to see uh, your name uh, written on your book with a little... Bon Mo and our scribbled signatures uh, you can do that.
0: Absolutely you can and um, always please get in touch if you've got any ideas for some more episodes and I think that's all for now. Thank you very much for listening Bye! Goodbye!